You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Today, a really good uh, sports media podcast. Two guests, two excellent guests. First up, Jamel Hill, uh, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, the host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered, which is on Spotify. She's creative advisor for Meadowlark Media, owns her own production company with Kelly Carter, Lodge Freeway Media. You know her, obviously, from ESPN and the Orlando Sentinel. Um, we talk about Naomi Osaka withdrawing from the French Open. Uh, the value of uh, post-game, post-match press conferences, why they're important to journalists, what maybe could have been done creatively so that the Naomi Osaka situation uh, did not end as it did. And then we finish up with discussing um, fans uh, interacting with players in a pretty horrible way, certainly over the last week, with uh, whether it be Kyrie Irving getting a bottle thrown at him, Russell Westbrook and popcorn, Trey Young being spit on. Uh, it's been an ugly week for fan interactions. Uh, it doesn't broad brush everybody who's a fan, obviously, but um, there's some, some foreboding and troubling signs out there. So I really appreciate Jamel coming on. It's always great. She's been on this podcast many times and uh, good of her to make some time uh, for that. Followed by, as we totally switch to something else, Tom Hannafin, who uh, you probably know by the announcing name, Tom Phillips. He spent nine years with the WWE and during that career, served as a play-by-play commentator on NXT and SmackDown 205 Live, NXT UK, and Raw. He's recently um, parted ways with the WWE and is now looking for uh, other opportunities, particularly in, uh, if he can, college football, which is what his passion is. And we talk about the challenges of uh, being a WWE broadcaster, how you try to get product knowledge, uh, competition within broadcasters there, whether uh, the WWE overproduces its broadcasters or gets in people's ear, his surprise to learn that he was no longer on Raw and uh, being replaced by Adan Verk, who has since been replaced by someone else. And then obviously what he'd like to do as he transitions from the WWE to traditional ball and stick sports. Mel Hill first, followed by Tom Hannafin, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, Jamel Hill has been a podcast guest of mine many times uh, on both this podcast and the Sports Illustrated podcast before. She is a contributing writer for The Atlantic, the host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. That's a podcast for Spotify. She's a creative advisor for Meadowlark Media. I think that's her official title there. And then she and her longtime friend Kelly Carter have their own production company, Lodge Freeway Media. Google that. They're um, doing some uh, production work with Gabrielle Union and others. And then obviously for the purposes of this podcast, certainly you know she worked for ESPN and the Orlando Sentinel and a couple of other newspapers during her career. I'm pleased to be joined by Jamel Hill. Jamel, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. And look at you. You got all the jobs right. <laughs> I am. I, I, th- th- you are like Adnan Verk-esque, Jamel, with the amount of jobs that you have. That's that's very impressive. Uh, although unlike Adnan, um, you actually have your own production company, so you can create your own jobs. So you got him on that there. Uh, all right. So we are a couple days after Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open. So I, I really want to just ask you a, a very broad question, and we'll start it that way. How do, how do you process what happened to Naomi at the French? It's one of those things where 
you think about, and although I know the answer to this, you just kind of can't help but think to yourself, how did it get to this point? I mean, this started with her making an announcement that she did not want to do any of the press conferences, uh, you know, post-match at the French Open. And she was willing to take the fine. And she was doing this because I think from, you know, obviously this is a, a tournament that she has not performed well in. Uh, I think she wanted to protect her piece. And suddenly we're having conversations about media access and what is the point of a press conference. And then, boom, the number two, um, you know, the number two tennis player in the world, women's tennis player in the world is suddenly out of one of the major tournaments. And I guess I never expected it to get this far. It's certainly not Naomi Osaka's part, um, fault rather. I definitely blame uh, the bodies of tennis because when the French Open, when they put out that statement uh, after they find her and when she didn't participate in her post-game press conference following her first win at the French Open, you know, it, it's one thing to put out a statement. That wasn't a statement. That was a declaration of war. And so, um, and not just by them. Again, the other leaders of the uh, other major tournaments also signed off on this letter and pretty much sent Naomi the message is that if you think that this is about you, it is not about you. It's about us and what we need. Forget about your mental health and other things. And so um, it just was a situation that escalated so fast that uh, even though we shouldn't be surprised by things anymore, probably in sports and certainly not as long as I have, I am surprised that we, that this situation got to the point where again, uh, the second ranked women's tennis player is not playing in the French open because of a gross failure. I think of leadership and a lack of understanding, empathy and support for her. So, you know, I'm going to try to do something that's insane on this topic and try to provide some nuance. Like, uh, let's uh oh, don't do, do it. That. I know. I should hot take <laughs> it, I realize. But so I think there are ways to talk about what's going on with Naomi Osaka, support her decision, and still then subsequently talk about the value of the open press conference and, and what that means. So let's get to Naomi first. Uh, tell me if you agree with me on this. I think very clearly. The organizing bodies, I certainly think a lot of commentators out there, thought she was bullshitting. They thought that the issue was she has not played well at the French. She's not been a great clay court player, and she does not want to handle the questions if she ends up, in this case, losing of how come you have failed to win on the surface when you know, you're the number two player in the world. Where I think she changed the equation is, like you said, she pulled out. And she said, the reason I'm pulling out is because, like— this is a mental health issue for me. If you do any kind of research on Naomi Osaka, it is out there. I mean, she's she's put it on social media that she's not comfortable in these situations. So to me, like, yeah, I agree. Media is certainly a part of the responsibilities of being a player and certainly a top player. And they, you know, if you enter a tournament, you do de facto sort of agree to do media press conferences. But Jamel, it's pretty clear. And she is consistent on this, that like this is not a comfortable situation for her. And I think what changed the game with her is I don't think these or I think these organizers were sort of trying to call her bluff. And I think she just said, fuck you. Like, this is a real issue for me and I'm going home. I, I'm not dealing with this. And, and this is uh, and I wrote about this um, for The Atlantic. And I think this is a part of the new normal that these organizing bodies, not just in tennis, but across professional sports, period, really aren't accustomed to and are going to have to get used to. You know, athletes today, especially if you're able to rise to a Naomi Osaka's level, 
I mean, she's the highest paid female athlete in the world. She made, what, almost $60 million last year. Yep. Uh, she's a four-time slam champion. She has, this is, you know, her career is barely getting started, but already she has enough power, leverage, social media following that she does not have to do what you want her to do just because you've been doing it this way a long time or because you value her entertainment value more than you value her, um, you know, ability to protect her her mental health. And this is, I agree with you completely. They thought that they were playing a game of chicken and they didn't realize that Naomi Osaka was for real, for real. And, um, you know, I, I, I was even surprised that she decided to withdraw just because, so you that. know, and yeah. Cause you know, this as somebody who's covered sports for a long time and you in particular has covered, you have, you've covered tennis way more than I have is that, you know, you know what these majors mean and what they can mean to a career. And even though she's won others, you know, like this is a big moment for her. Yeah, this is the, this is this is where legacies are made and lost. This is what correct. It's about. Right. And so for somebody to make the conscious choice that they'd rather not, I mean, that is a new level of empowerment that I think these organizers are not used to. They are used to always having the leverage of television exposure, playing time, you know legacy building all those things at their disposal as soon as you get somebody who is willing to frankly walk away from those things then it becomes a different kind of fight and then you realize that you're up against something that you can't control um i'll relate it to colin kaepernick in this way i think one of the reasons he's not in the nfl is not so much we know it's not about playing we know it's not about that Part of it is about the fact that the owners are still pissed off and they blame him for the year in which everybody blamed him for, you know, sagging ratings. And you can put that in quotation marks because in an NFL, there's kind of no such thing. Um, But they also don't have him in the NFL or he's not in the NFL because of his influence on other players. They don't want any other players feeling that empowered players that they cannot control under their normal methods and means, which is again, through salary, playing time, all those other things. They don't want anybody else creating any movements. They want to kill that right away. And so I think, you know, what Naomi Osaka has shown is that in an individual sport where you're able to gain as much leverage and worldwide following that she has, that you, uh, as, as, as the kids like to say, you fucked around and found out. (laughs) And, And that's just, that's just kind of where where we are. So um, I, I they they thought that statement was going to be an incredible flex, and it wound up being the dumbest thing that they could have ever ever done. Here's a memo to the people at the French Open. Ever heard of a pool reporter? Just say it. I mean, there are plenty of things you could have well, done. I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you got to this because this is sort of what I, I either I tweeted this out or wrote it. I don't even remember at this point. But like to me, Jamel, like both of us have been in a million press conference situations, open press conferences, like to, to last us a lifetime. It's so easy to figure out a solution to this, right? You get the player and her representatives in a room and you say like, okay, like wh- what, what is a way for us to make this work where you can fulfill these responsibilities? The global press can get something from you, but if the situation of sort of answering like a million different questions in either a Zoom format or some other format is just making you uncomfortable. Like, how do we make this work? So your solution is perfect. Like, that's a that to me is what smart people do. Like, okay, let's assign the AP uh, Paris correspondent. I'm making this up, right? Or let's assign the New York Times tennis writer. They'll act as the pool reporter, which, by the way, happens for like U.S. presidents, right? It happens for like the NFL. 
or you you do something like I mean again you 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 come up with creative solutions um five pe- 10 press people are chosen that day to ask questions they send it via email Naomi sits down at a laptop and responds uh like you know via voice and then some WTA person transcribes her answers and sends it as a transcript like there are cre- like I literally thought of that off the top of my head you know what I mean smarter people than me can come up with ways that this can be done quickly so I'm totally with you like there was not any intention of actually helping the function of the press get something from her it was about power it was about the body saying you're going to follow our rules or we're going to either a find you money or b and this is where i think she and probably her team were like that's it when they started threatening suspension or something from other majors that was the game and she's like that's where player empowerment comes in and she's like i'm out of here like you you can't control me on that so I'll just throw it back to you. Like, it's so frustrating as someone who likes the sport of tennis. Like, this, like, a group of 12th graders could have come up with a solution. It's not that tough to, like, you know, to make this work. No, and I, and I think, too, of, of of the fact that given, you know, the French Open, certainly tennis is internationally popular. I mean, we know it has kind of a, I don't want to be insulting to tennis, but it, it has a bit of a fringe appeal. In, yeah, in, it's a in niche sport in the United States. It's a niche, sure. it's a, yeah, it's a niche sport, right? You need the number two player there. You need yes, a Naomi Osaka there. Right. ESPN is, does, I can tell you that. Oh, NBC does. I, I can imagine how pissed these networks are right now. Like, really? Nobody could think of something that would have allowed this to be a, a workable uh, solution, some kind of compromise. And, you know, given the state that American tennis is in, in particular, this just really seemed like such a stupid strategy move that was more built in, as you said, the power, more built in the quote unquote tradition, the fact that we're the French Open, instead of actually understanding what the long game here was. And, you know, I'm just curious as to where things go from here, because once somebody throws down the kind of gauntlet that they threw down uh, against Naomi Osaka, then what is this going to look like for her at the majors going forward? Is this going to make her more likely to talk to the press? Probably not. And so if I'm the majors that are following the French Open, I am already actively thinking of solutions. Like the U.S. Open, you better be thinking of ways (laughs) in which Naomi Osaka could be in a comfortable, you know, stress-free or as stress-free as you can provide it um, environment. You know, the interesting thing about all this conversation, especially as it relates to the media's role in this, is that I think there's this assumption that we like press conferences. I mean, none of us really like them. We just kind of deal with them because we have to. Yeah, you but have it's, to deal with it. and they're val- yeah. And they're very valuable to people um, who are not me and you, who are at smaller outlets who need the open press conference, who can't get a one-on-one. Like, that, that's, that is how they ultimately will interact with those subjects. And by the way, I don't know, uh, as much as, you know, reporters can bellow, and despite the fact, I guess, to some extension, we become public figures by writing about these athletes, a lot of reporters are not comfortable asking questions in press conferences. Like, it's, it's a frightening environment for reporters, too, because you have to stand up in a room full of your peers, right. you know, it's being broadcast right. directly on TV. Exactly. So yep. you ask a dumb question and, right. you know, next thing you know, you're going viral for all the wrong or reasons. It's for, so, or you're, or the people who want to do it are performative and they're asking questions either for the bosses or for the television people at home. 
Correct. It's, and, it's, art- it, it's all artificial in many ways. Totally. I mean, it, it's, it's a show. I mean, and a, and a lot of it is for the networks and the fact that entities need to be able to say, Naomi Osaka told the Boston Globe, as opposed to, you know, right. it, it just, it looks good on camera if you have, you know, Mark Schwartz answering a question or whatever. Like, I mean, it's just, there is a, a bit of a show element to it, but you know, I, I, I know that a lot of people don't understand what it is that we do, but I, I just just in the conversations that um, I've seen over social media, uh, it, it, it's clear not that this is any big surprise to you. Most people don't really understand what journalists do. So <laughs> so. so so let me let me uh, let's get into the press conference part, because that's sort of part two of this. Like, I, 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 and again, if I prove to be wrong, I'll certainly own it. But I, I'm one who believes, Jamel, that if you make a, spe- a special provision for Naomi Osaka, that is not the beginning of every single athlete in every single sport all of a sudden saying, like, we're not going to do press conferences anymore. We're not going to talk to the press. Most of the athletes actually understand the value of talking to the media still and will do it. The biggest athletes in the world. LeBron James, for instance, still talks to the press. He hasn't just decided to use his only, you know, his public forums, social media forums, and bypass the press. So it's just like I saw that and it, it struck me that like you're going from A to Z. Like this is one instance of one athlete at the French Open, not even in your country, who sort of made a request. So I don't think the press conference is going away. And I support the press conference. And I think the reason I support it, uh, Jamel, is what I just said to you is, in, in particularly in the college a- athletics environment all over the country, that is still far and away like the place where a lot of local papers will get something from a coach or athletes. And I think universities still understand the value of that. And I think pro teams still understand the value of that. So I just wonder how you see it. Like, I, I guess... I know I read a lot of media people who sort of were reemphasizing the importance of the press conference and somehow were indicating like this is the beginning and the end. But like it's not. It's one athlete who said X. And I think take the athlete at her word because she's been pretty honest about mental health on this. There's, you know, there's 500 other athletes aren't saying it today. Um, there you go, trying to bring nuance to a conversation uh, because you can two things can be true at the same time. You can both believe in the press conference and believe in Naomi Osaka's exactly. right to not do them, okay? Which is where I stand on it too. And obviously, being biased as being a, a career, um, you know, journalist, and you know, people have to also understand. In addition to the fact that this is not meaning the end of media access or the end of the press conference, even though clearly media access has changed dramatically over the years, um, that this is about one athlete who is in a different position. See, we know who Naomi Osaka is. And uh, if you follow tennis, you probably know some of the other star players if you are big into tennis. But there's a lot of players that are not known to a wider audience and they do still need these press conferences. It's a symbiotic relationship. Yep. Um, there's a lot of stories that get written about uh, that um, about players besides Serena Williams. All right. And there has to be a way to access those players. And as I tried to explain in the Atlantic piece is that tennis is really in a very different position because other than tournaments, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you pretty much don't have access to those players unless, you know, you have some kind of personal relationship. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, with their management, right. you know, you which is not impossible, by the way. Like if you're, no, if, you're if you're, if uh, you're, I'm making this up. If you're the Tampa Bay Times like reporter, and there's a Tampa tournament, and you know you want to talk to Madison Keys or Sloan Stevens. The reality is, if you can get to their publicist or agent, you're going to be able to get them. Like they'll make that happen. It's good for their player. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I know it's not the same setup of, say, LeBron James, who talks multiple times a week. He pretty much talks every day, right? Uh, so the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball and NHL, they operate, and the WNBA, they operate a, a, a lot differently. But, I, you know, I, I do think that the majority of players are not in the position uh, to do what Naomi so Financially, did. right? Financially, they're not. Is that yeah. they can't afford to miss out on a t- tournament as lucrative as the French Open, even if they were not expected to win it, even from a sponsorship standpoint. Exactly. You know, Nike is not going to drop Naomi Osaka because she didn't play in the French Open or remind her about what her commitments and obligations are. So right. we are talking about a special nuanced case. What the, And this is, to me, the good thing. I think what it will open up, is that other players, be it in tennis or other sports, who did not feel comfortable talking about their uneasiness in these situations will now feel more comfortable saying that they're uneasy. And maybe both journalists and these organizations that they may represent will be able to come up with more workable solutions. Because, listen, it's not easy to be 23 years old, as she is, and be in the position of, you know, not just being a great tennis player in the somewhat uncomfortable position of also unseating an icon at the same time as Serena Williams, right? So everybody isn't born to be in that situation. That's something that's going to take some time, some experience, some savvy. How Serena Williams was with the media earlier in her career is not the same way she is now because it took time for her to learn. And I think tennis players especially are in a different position because so many of them become stars so much younger than we see in other sports. So I say all that to say is that You know, it it is no um, detriment if somebody is her age and hasn't quite figured out what her comfortable space is with these media um, sessions. But I just I hope for other players who do feel that same sense of anxiety and unease. I hope they're more honest with their teams and their leagues and whoever they need to about what they need in order to get through it, because I think that to me would be the big positive that came out of this. That's well said. Here's the last uh, one we'll do on this, and then we'll just finish up with some fan, uh, sort of the, the interaction between fan and players. Um, I, I saw a lot on social media uh, the last couple of days about, well, the questions that Naomi gets asked are unfair, or some of these questions of tennis players are pretty gross. And, and that's true. That, like, no argument. Like, at Wimbledon, like, the questions from the British, from me- I should be specific here, the questions from tabloid press in Britain are pretty sexed up and are intentionally to get provocative answers, generally speaking from women players so that they could sell papers. But here's the issue, Jamel. And by the way, I I don't have an answer for this in tennis. You're going to get people credentialed one in different countries. And so the standard of publication in different countries is, is going to be different. So what might be unacceptable in Britain or France like into someone in America, like I don't know what you do because the French Open or the U.S. Open or Wimbledon ultimately decides on the credentialing. I can tell you a million times, I, like I said, I've been in thousands of tennis practice conferences at the U.S. Open. And a question from John Wertheim may come for Serena, let's say. Then the next question could be someone who's like a borderline fan publication 
And then the next question could come from some reporter from Europe who's just trying to get a headline out of Serena. Like, I don't know in that sport, like, how you fix that other than be really subjective when it comes to credentialing. But then the problem is if you're too subjective when it comes to credentialing, you're really preventing access and you're you're hurting your sport too. So I don't have the, the answers for it, but I, and I know you've seen this too. It's probably the same thing with sports that you've covered in open press conferences. Like, the levels of questions are going to be different because the quality of journalist is going to be different in the room. And I don't know how you, I don't know how you honestly fix that. Well, we see it at the highest level of, uh, you know, office, the, the presidency. Think, yes. Look at the questions that, you know, the press secretary gets asked every day. And especially because of Trump's administration, the type of, of, of news organizations that were getting credentials credentialed would never that never would have happened 10 years ago but suddenly you have newsmax and breitbart like they're getting credentials and there's really nothing that you could do about it because unfortunately we're all under the guise of being press and that that can be what i feel like is very unfair to professional journalists journalists who are doing it the right way and by the right way i don't mean my way i think there's a general standard that we can all agree on that they everybody gets lumped in together and so if that tabloid reporter asks Serena something about who she's dating or her marriage, suddenly that represents all of us. Right. And the fucked up part is we have to protect that person's right to be a fucking clown. As you much do, as though. We, like, and I, we and do. I do. We don't have it's, any choice. <laughs> trust me, it's, it sucks. But, yeah, I have to. It, the principle is larger than the question. But the question hurts me and you in that press conference immensely. So the only thing that I would ask of 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 athletes is that they, I mean, I think some of this does have to come from them, you know, particularly if we're talking about people, as you mentioned, and I've, I've heard it. I haven't been in the room when it's happened, when they ask questions that are particularly sexist, I think that needs to be called out and you need to threaten certain organizations with losing their credentials. I would agree um, with that. Because even if the, there is no universal worldwide journalism code Every organization has a right to have a standard. And if you don't meet that standard, uh, and I think, again, we know what it is, then you should have your credentials threatened to be ripped away. And I know it gets tricky because some of these tabloids have monstrous readerships, okay? And right. so you don't want to cut off their access. Yeah. At and the questions are subjective, right? What you, might find, what you might find bothersome, someone else finds fine. That's, the, that, that's where it gets very hard to police. Yeah, and I, and I look, I know that a lot of people like one of the the moments that was circulating a lot on Twitter in particular was when Serena broke down and cried and uh I think the last major it was. And the question she was asked was not a bad question. It was not Agreed. harsh. It was not yeah. but no, it, that was it a was general just, that was a normal post-match it, press conference. It was question. a normal post-match uh question, but it was an emotional time for her and while you know, I, I wouldn't I understand the discomfort sometimes that people have of seeing somebody who's obviously emotional having to have that moment before the the world. Um, that wasn't really the fault of the journalist. And so I, I've heard a lot of fans um, and I don't, I'm sure you've heard from a lot of people on Twitter where fans are just like, well, what's the point of these press conferences? Fans don't care about press conferences. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, and, you do. Because you're commenting maybe, on what the athlete said. Exactly. And okay. maybe it's a thing where they don't realize what's coming from a press conference, but like you literally care about all of it. And while I certainly respect any athlete's right to tell their own stories, be it through social media, 
their production companies, writing firsthand pieces um, or first person pieces, having a podcast is your right to tell your story however you want. But people have to understand is that even within that, they're going to tell the story they want to tell. And that doesn't that doesn't mean that the questions you may have as a fan base are always going to be answered because most athletes, most people, it's human nature, do not want to relive, uncover or dive deep into bad moments. They just don't. And so if you want to know why, for example, you know, we're, we're fresh off this Portland-Denver game that was sensational. But what was the question everybody had? Why the hell are you still single covering Dame Lillard after he's completely torched you? That's a right. fair question to ask a coach. Absolutely. Uh, it, w- it was fair to ask, you know, Pete Carroll after he didn't give Marshawn Lynch the ball on the one-yard one yard line. Don't y'all want to know why? Like, that's part of our job. And so... As usual, the media, were low-hanging fruit. Everybody's banging on journalists. And I get that it's very fashionable to do. Yeah. but so It's the fastest-growing career right now for a political person. It's, you know, yeah, it's a media it's, critic. It's, it's, it's really easy to do. But, I, you know, I, in times like these, and I've had to remind people on social media, understand that the majority of journalists are working journalists. They are not rich. Right. These press they're conferences. They're not on CNN. They're, they're they, not they don't on live CNN. In, they're not going to White House parties. Like no. they're they're honestly like making forty five thousand dollars a year covering like high school football in like North Dakota or covering city council meetings in St. Louis. Like that's the so, majority of them. So this access, um, and even for beat writers and everything, like so this access is very critical yes. to how they do their jobs, which is thus critical to their survival so and um, just like you yesterday like what i wanted to know is like dame lillard had one of the great all-time playoff performances of all time but he lost like i I wanted to hear like how do you how do you reconcile that i just had one of the greatest performances honestly in nba history but yet i'm down three two in the series which sucks yeah Yeah. and you want to hear from him um Mm -hmm. and you You do you don't you don't want me putting my spin on it you don't want me to put it in my own words you want to hear hear from him directly hear directly from them and he talked he's a pro and he did and he he didn't you know he he answered the questions because i I feel like a lot of guys particularly in that league understand like that you know the fans are interested and they want to know at alma we know the connection between you and your therapist matters but if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming that's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. Um, all right, that leads me to the last sort of part here, and it's involving the fans as well. Um, you know, as we come out of the pandemic and we see crowds uh, in arenas, it's phenomenal to watch. Obviously, it makes the experience so much better. You know, uh, watching like uh, those fans at Madison Square Garden made me so into the Nick game. I was watching a Bruin game the other day, like sold out crowd. It sounded so loud. Uh, I'm not the biggest auto racing fan, Jamel, but even like watching Indy 500 was amazing. Like all those people like screaming. But with that, obviously. Fans are back, and I don't know. Like, I don't think I'm overstating this. 
it's been one of the one of the worst weeks of my life of seeing fans um, do some bad shit regarding players, throwing stuff, spitting. I think if I'm right about that on Trey Young, um, Jimmy Trainer was on my podcast last week, um, and he was pretty alarmist. He said he believed this is only the beginning. He said there's a lot of grievance and a shitload of anger out there. People have been cooped up in their house for a year, and he thinks this is going to come out both between fan and athletes and fan and fan. Um, I was a little, I try to take him off the track saying, you know, it's early, let's see what happens. But, you know, this week it, it, it bolstered his argument, not mine, with Russell Westbrook and Kyrie and Trey Young. And I don't know, how do you see it? I mean, are we, I hope we're not heading for like, you know, a malice at the palace kind of like world. But I, I mean, I can't deny what I'm watching in front of me either. Well, it's not just malice in the palace that I worry about. Um, you and I are both old enough to remember Monica Sellis. That's what yep. I worry about. Oh, yeah. And a, a lot of today's sports fans don't remember that moment or maybe you weren't even alive then. But, you know, it, it really did happen. Somebody ran on the court and stabbed one of the best tennis players in the world in front of everybody. Mm. And um, I think this is representative of the mood in our country. Um it's very angry right now. And I don't, I think the pandemic is some of it. Uh, don't get me wrong, because as you said, people have been cooped up in their houses. Um, but it, being cooped up in your house is, is not going to automatically say, you know, what sounds like a good idea. Me trying to spit on Trey Young. Right. I don't think it's just, I don't think it's just that. I think there it, it's anger in our country right now is very politically divided. It's very racially divided. Um, as it was, I think athletes, especially black athletes, especially the NBA, because they have been very vocal and out front, particularly about social issues, that it has created a level of toxicity uh, between players and fans that I think is probably at an all time high. Um, you know, there's a sense of entitlement that fans have when they go to games. Uh, you know, these games are expensive as hell. Um and especially if you're in a good seat, because uh, you know you you ever notice that a lot of times, or, or at least some of the times, it, it seems like the worst behavior comes from the people who sit the closest. Yeah. Well, look at right? the uh, the Golden State owner uh, yeah. a couple of years ago, right? Like yep. I was sitting in the first row of the of the of the stadium. It's like, what you mad at? You sitting courtside, and even with right. Trey Young, yeah. that dude was what two rows? He's he's exactly. sitting behind Fifty Cent. Okay, yeah. like what are you pissed about? I know. Right, and so. Um, you know, even years ago with the malice of the palace, that beard didn't come up from a couple rows up. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, when people are in these expensive seats, um, they really feel like that they deserve to be part of the action and not just a spectator. And especially when it comes to players, families, they don't feel like that's off limits at all. Thinking about what John Morant and his family went through yep. being subjected to a lot of, um, verbal abuse from fans, but there is like a deep sense of of entitlement that they have that's is is unfathomable. But yet, looking into context, it, it's sort of explainable. I mean, somebody said this to me a long time ago. Actually, not that long ago. You know who it was? I just remembered it was my former TV partner and good friend Michael Smith, and he was talking about. Uh, we got on the conversation one day, and I don't remember if it's on air or not, about how the fantasy football nature of sports has led. Uh, fans to have a far deeper fucked up sense of entitlement when it comes to athletes because they really look at them like you're my commodity I own you you know and 
it's almost on a higher level, I would say, than movie stars. You know, like when Tom Cruise is in a movie, I don't think the person watching is like, I own Tom Cruise. Like he's right. here for my entertainment or whatever. Now, they may have fan interactions that sort of create that sense of a feeling, but nobody's going to throw, a, you know, a bottle at the rock's head because they didn't like Fast and Furious. I mean, granted, he's big as fuck, so they wouldn't anyway, but you know what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, I did, like, right. But they, but they don't feel that same relationship, but with sports, uh, it's different. It's that they're, and I, I do think racial makeup is a part of it, is especially when it comes to black athletes who they feel like they have given their careers, by the way, underlining given. They feel right. like because of that, I'm putting money in your pocket. I made you a millionaire. The animosity, the jealousy, the grievance culture in America right now, all of that has been mushed together to put in a really awful crockpot. And while I would like to think that this is not a thing, um, that this is not something that's going to continue and get worse, because I'd hate to see the day where they've had to create such a wall of security or yeah, like European soccer. Yeah, exactly. Like I, right. I'd hate I'd hate to see that happen. In American sports, but it it might be necessary if these things continue and it might be something that these leagues have to look at. Uh, that being said, there's a part of me that sort of selfishly pulls for one day, one of them to run up on the wrong one and find out. And then hopefully that will send a message to the rest of them that you are there, sir or ma'am, to watch the game. You are not right. there to be part of it. <laughs> I will say this, your, your Monica Sellis uh, like thing, like, that's really sobering to think about because there was a dude, I think it was the Wizards game, who came flying down, right? And yeah, just sort he of did. Belly flop and he got the... tackled. No, he got he tackled. Yeah, he, got, he tackled. got tackled. Right. Like, yeah. the, the thing is, like, dude, like, you are walking on a court with, like, the, the some of the best, like, in shape, strong people on earth. Like, um, it, it, it's, you know, one, like, you do wonder, like, where was security to start with? But two, like, I, I agree with you. Like, all that stuff keeps like a guy like um, Adam Silver up at night because like once the players and the fans interact in a dangerous situation, like it's 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 bad for all parties, but most likely very bad for the party who interrupted that game or field. And I tend to be with you here. Like I, I you know, the concoction. You know, Michael makes a good point on fantasy. Like the it's a bad toxic mix of like alcohol gambling ownership grievance probably some race and then some other stuff all mixed up in like one bad stew um, and you brought up another important well you just brought up something that i was also thinking is that in addition to building some kind of security barrier don't be shocked that it, it, look now is the time that fans have to police each, police each other and i will say the one thing that was clear in a lot of these cases the fans told on the person who did it there they was did. no trying to yeah. there was no trying to cover well, it up camera, what, you're 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 just a stupid human being to think you could pull it off in the era of camera phones anyway right i mean yeah. like what are you doing well what may happen and especially be a fan on player or fan on fan um which i think fan on fan has honestly been really bad for a long time yeah. but um that's Is where that Tra Trainer thinks it's going to be like mask on, mask off kind of people who are pissed oh, off. Oh, yeah, vaccinated. That's, where, that's not, what yes. he thinks eventually is going to happen. I completely agree with that. Um, but what I was going to say is that you may see arenas and um, – places have to move to a situation where they're alcohol-free sporting events. And, hmm. uh, I, you know, the, if that happens, the fans have brought this on themselves. And so 
Um, it's such a big money maker. I'm not going to say it would completely go away, but you know, I know what is it? Major League Baseball, they stopped selling at the seventh inning. I think in most, you know, uh, NBA games, it's like the third quarter. You may see that go up, move up and up and up, okay, because they want to prevent people from acting foolishly. Yeah. Jamel, uh, I appreciate you coming on today. We could do this obviously for another hour, but, uh, but you're working very cheap for me, so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna take advantage of this. <laughs> I know, Jamel I know. Hill- <laughs> the check is in the mail. <laughs> yeah, the che- <laughs> takes a long time to get to California. Jamel Hill is a contributing writer for the Atlantic. The host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast for Spotify. She's a creative advisor for Meadowlark Media. Uh, she'll probably be part of like uh, uh, the Lebertard debut, like or or well, they've kind of debuted, but the official official debut that's coming, uh, I believe, this week. Um, she and Kelly Carter have a production company, Lodge Freeway Media. Check that out. And, uh, you know, you certainly know her from her days at uh, and ESPN and, uh, and the Orlando Sentinel and elsewhere. Jamel, thanks so much. Continued success. Uh, I look forward to catching up with you soon. I'm glad you're still uh, keeping your hand in sports a little bit. I know that's something that's, uh, that's always a part of you, so it's good that you get some forums to, uh, to talk about it. And thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on mine. All right. I always appreciate it. Thanks, Rich. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. As I said at the top, uh, Tom Hannafin, which uh, if you were a uh, WWE fan, you knew him by his announcing name, Tom Phillips. He spent nine years with the WWE and basically did play-by-play on pretty much everything. NXT and SmackDown, 205 Live, Raw, uh, NXT UK. Uh, He recently parted ways with that organization and is now looking for traditional opportunities, which is where his background is from, in fact, at Penn State. And he joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Tom, welcome. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Richard. I appreciate it. What was the most challenging thing about being a broadcaster for the WWE? So I got hired at 23 years old, which uh, is a is a is a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. In that I had everything to learn about professional wrestling. Um, I was a casual fan when I was a kid, and I've been spoken about that before played the video games watched during the attitude era um but i had to learn everything from the ground up and on top of that you know no broadcaster at 23 is really that finely polished so um everybody at wwe you know it's a takes a village did an amazing job of helping me get up to speed just as a broadcaster things as simple as working in a studio working with a teleprompter basics things that I, i needed to learn how to walk so they gave me so many opportunities to learn those things. But um, the toughest thing about uh, WWE is that if you're coming in, and there's plenty of people who come in who don't know professional wrestling inside out and backwards, you got to get up to speed quickly. And you find the right people that have your, your back and will support you and teach. I had so many people like that, but it took years for me to get comfortable with it. And that's how intricate the product is. 
So one of the things that if you listen to wrestling podcasts as I do, um, they talk about product knowledge. That's a, that's a Jim Rossism. I love that. It's calling like wrestling product <laughs> knowledge. Um, and you just sort of cited that, like, okay, I, I came in and I have to learn everything. So I th- so what fascinates me, just as someone obviously who's watched this for a long time, is so how do you do that on the fly? Because you obviously, the more reps you get, the, the more you will be familiar with the wrestlers, the moves of the wrestlers, just maybe the cadence of how matches are. But, you know, you don't, Tom, you know this. You don't necessarily have a ton of time to, um, to get up to speed because as a member of, let's say, the WWE Universe, I'm expecting you to know this stuff. So, like, can you – do you watch tapes and tapes and tapes? Do you talk to the performers? How do you get up to speed? It's both, and it took years of doing that. I think one of the more helpful things when I first started was – um, I, I was working with people like uh, Renee Paquette and uh, a lot of different broadcasters up in Connecticut that were just kind of helping me uh, learn kind of the ins and outs. Um, one of the simplest things was that I'm a big video game guy. So I would play the video game. You can go in there and it's got like, you know, if you create a wrestler, it's got a laundry list of moves that is just a baffling document. <laughs> and it's got Argentine backbreaker, German suplex, snapmare takedown, all these things, yada, yada, yada. Well, you'd watch that enough and you do that enough, you start to figure it out. And then, of course, you're a fan over the years, you know, guys' signature moves, et cetera. So those are the things that kind of will stick with you the easiest, but it's just kind of trial and error. It's doing it over and over again. And I was fortunate that the early incarnation of NXT was taped. So I had chances to, you know, oh, okay, I messed up. Oh, all right. You didn't identify that correctly. We can edit that or something. And there was a little forgiveness in that respect. But the best thing that I had was being around so many talented performers that were current or retired or whatever it was. And they would basically hold you to a really high standard that if you didn't know moves, et cetera, whatever, they can maybe help you and be like, oh yeah, the technical term is this, or this guy calls it that. But I had so many guys and girls that I would speak to that were diehard wrestling fans, knew where, when, why, how, with just about every storyline and occurrence in wrestling history, that if you didn't bother to spend the time to figure out what that was, you were dead in the water. And I got really fortunate that in 2014, two years in, we created the WWE Network. So everything was at your fingertips. So I spent every waking hour that I could delving into history and trying to learn on the fly. How does uh, someone at 23 years old get hired by the WWE? (laughs) Dumb luck. Uh, (laughs) So uh, to give some context, I've spoken about this on other podcasts before. So I was working for uh, Juniata College, uh, which was Division Three men's and women's basketball in central Pennsylvania. Um, Penn State kids, so that was right down the road. It's convenient right after I graduated. And I was subscribed to a website called staatalent.com, uh, which a lot of college kids use, uh, to my understanding, still. And a job lead came out. It's for WWE. I couldn't believe it. I was blown away like because it's a huge, global, billion-dollar company. I was like, Come on, you know, and I'd been a casual fan. So I was like, I was like any kid after school. I was like, I need a job. So I was applying to just about everywhere you could imagine. And uh, I sent in a tape. Um, I auditioned in June of 2012. And then it was just being persistent through the summer into September of 2012. They offered me a contract. I, I still to this day, I'm so grateful, but also like, I can't believe they took a flyer on me. And, you know, at 23, how fortunate I was because there's so many kids that are in broadcasting now and people that I went to school with that 
would have killed for that sort of opportunity. So it was just amazing. The one of the things that um, you know is sort of famous about uh, WWE. Maybe this was the same for WCW. I actually don't know if it's AEW. I imagine it's not. But one of the famous things historically about WWE was they would make you do like some crazy stuff in a broadcasting audition. I think and Renee. Paquette, the back then, obviously, Renee Young, has been on this podcast many times, maybe six or seven times. And I believe she was asked to do some kind of minute with a, like, a you basically interview a broom or do a minute, yep. basically. <laughs> do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I basically, exactly like, here's like about. a crazy scenario. You got to show us that you can do stuff on the fly in right. real time. When you were doing your audition, were you asked to do anything like that? Yes. And it was funny. Renee, I think, got hired like a month before me. So we were kind of in the same, like, interviewing cycle so to speak i can't remember what they gave her but they gave me some piece of like equipment that either went on the back of a computer or something like that and they're like you have 60 seconds sell me on this and i was like okay like you remember wolf of wall street where he's like sell me this pen you know like i don't have that gene necessarily so i was like oh my gosh so like i felt good probably for the first 20 30 seconds then i'm like i'm just repeating myself a lot so there were elements of the audition that like i was 50 50 walking out of there that was like that could have been awful that could have been great i have no idea so we'll see what happens i wonder how competitive it is within the different broadcasters there you know michael cole is very much an exception in that he um you know his tenure there is long i mean he's been a mainstay he, whatever he's in his 25th 26th year uh, JR was somebody who lasted a long time at WWE, but you know, the, the reality is like broadcasters get cycled there. And I'm wondering internally, um, how competitive did you feel it was within the broadcasting assignments? Um, I think it depends on what your, your relationships are like. There were definitely times where I felt competition with other play-by-play announcers that we had over the years. Um, there was definitely time I felt competition with people who weren't even at my position because I could see how good they were. And I was like, yeah, I got up my game because if they're doing X and I'm doing Y. It's not elevating the product. So I want to make sure that I'm at that level. But I, I can honestly say, man, like when I was there, the camaraderie amongst the announced team was fantastic. It, it always felt like you were in that proverbial foxhole with somebody who had your back. And that wasn't just the announce team. That was the entire crew production team. Like I have literally hundreds of people that I could thank for propping me up over the years, but the competition was, I always found it to be really healthy. I always wanted to be as good as the person sitting next to me. And that was sometimes it's all task. Um, so I, I always really enjoyed it because it doesn't do you any good if it's just like, well, good show, go home, see you next time. You know? So I was, was try trying to get better every week. All right. So I want to ask you a couple of questions here. The reality is that you, you separated from the WWE. You probably have a separation agreement. So you're going to have to be in some sense diplomatic. So just go as far as you feel comfortable on a couple of these. Um, one of the things that broadcasters have talked about with me, including on this broad podcast over the years, is being overproduced, having producers in your ear, um, the challenge of sort of navigating uh, what the bosses want as you're live on the air. Um, how often did that happen for you? Um, it happens regularly, but it also depends on who you are. So my experience is different than everybody else's. Um, I think the misconception about WWE is that it's like, oh, well, you can just call it like a sport and it's entertainment. It's, it's geared to be like your TV show that you watch at the end of the day or something, you know, whatever it is you're into. 
So we're trying to tell stories and my micro view can sometimes be very different than the macro view. And that was the way I always saw it is there were plenty of things that I could be told where, Hey, try this, say this, do this, whatever. Um, and it was, Oh, because they're seeing macro and I'm seeing micro. I've got the horse blinders on in the moment, looking at literally this tiny monitor right on my desk. And that's my whole world. So to have that over my shoulder, whether, uh, regardless of the show that I was on, I always found made me better. And then you learn the next time out of, oh, okay, this is maybe how they want to execute this story or something. And if the story gets told better, one of the easiest things in wrestling that we've, you know, that you hear preached all the time is that great stories are what you remember. So if I can be a part of telling those stories, that's my job. So I was always fine with it. Did, um, did being removed from Raw come as a surprise or is that something you expected? I, I can honestly say I was surprised. Um, Adnan Verk was somebody that I had known, uh, not to date him in any way, but he had a run on uh, SportsCenter when I was in college and then just right out of college. So I'd watched him for years. So when I hear hey, Adnan Verk's coming in to be the uh, lead announcer for Monday Night Raw, I was like, whoa, that is a, that is a shift. Um, but at the same time, I was like, man, I have all the respect in the world for this guy's ability in terms of what the job of Raw and SmackDown requires, what everybody refers to commonly in play-by-play is traffic, getting from graphics to B-roll to an interview, et cetera. I was like, well, this guy did SportsCenter, which is just one-way traffic. Um, <laughs> and then he did college football halftime shows. So I was like, yeah, uh, this guy's probably got the skill set to do this. So I was, uh, I was definitely surprised. But at the same time, to hear it was uh, the name of somebody like Adnan Burke, I was like, okay, I get it. Were you surprised at how short his tenure was? Um, I, I was, uh, th to be very honest, um, because I've seen uh, so many different people come and go at different levels of the announced team and different spots in the announced team. So um, I, I won't speak to necessarily in terms of what he was going through, because that's what his experience was. So I can't really speak to that. But it was fast. Um, but that being said, he has so many other things that he does um, in conventional sports casting, uh, conventional sports, whatever you want to call it, where he is so talented and uh, he's going to do just fine. So I, I don't need to say that. He knows that. <laughs> we, uh, I'm going to get to like what you want to do heading forward in a second. I, I, I do want to ask you this because I, um, in talking Adnan, actually, I spoke to right uh, when he got this job. Um, and um, one of the things that he was really excited about was, um, you know, getting to know some of the performers. He had told me early on that Drew McIntyre, Rhea Ripley in particular, were like just really cool people to work with. Um, I, I wonder if you could share with my audience just some of your favorite stories in terms of a performer, whether it was something that you guys did behind the scenes, whether it was calling a particular match. But I think... I think people like, at least for this particular podcast, would dig who really understands sort of the the role of a WWE broadcaster. Yeah, I, in my, man, I've had so many great relationships and uh, I hope to continue to have great relationships with everybody in WWE. And I can genuinely say I've made some lifelong friends there. Um, I'll, I'll focus on the new day. Um, I, I could go on and on about a lot of people, but um it, I can't tell you how emotional it was WrestleMania 35, Kofi Kingston winning the WWE title from Daniel Bryan. It was, it was extraordinarily emotional because I felt a, that 
what uh, Corey Graves and Byron Sachs and myself did in terms of calling the match and the storyline uh, was uh, very good. And I felt very confident about it. I think Byron Saxon had the call of his lifetime that night. And I was so emotional um, calling the match. And then especially after the fact, when everything had sunk in, um, I've gotten to know Biggie. Uh, he is one of my closest friends. He and I buzz each other about college football constantly. <laughs> um, Xavier Woods and I uh, knew each other from the very beginning in NXT, as I did with Biggie. But um, Xavier and I got to work together. Um, we're both video game guys and just see eye to eye on a lot of stuff. So, um, and Woods on top of that has been one of my biggest supporters. Um, I remember not long ago, pulled me aside and was just very complimentary. And I just like, it just means the world to you. And then Kofi, like who doesn't know Kofi Kingston in the world of professional wrestling, who doesn't respect Kofi Kingston and to see his journey. And it just come out of nowhere like that. I was like trying to keep it together on the air. Like I'm getting like, you know, it's getting dusty out there at MetLife Stadium. And I'm like, all right, you got to keep it together. And your cough button's really handy there. So um, I, I put a lot of thought and effort into the entire storyline. And then especially that call, um, th that might be my the most important thing to me uh, that I had a chance to be a part of. Am I right that Biggie was went to Iowa and played football at Iowa? Is, yes, and okay. that's been a and huge. You're a, Penn State, uh, you're a Penn State guy, so this is a natural rivalry between you. Two. It's a natural rivalry that Penn State has dominated the last twenty years. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, been, you're not wrong. It's about been it. pretty. It's been. <laughs> I'm not wrong, but going into Kinnick is like the most difficult thing in the world. But he and I, you know, every weekend during college football season are just all day and all night about stuff going back and forth. And then um, one thing he and I have yet to do, and this is, it sucks because the NCAA video game franchise uh, was discontinued. All I ever wanted to do was like, we're going to get NCAA 14. You're going to be Iowa and I'm going to be Penn State. I don't even think he's that big of a video game guy, but like I more so than him. And I'm like, I am going to whoop you in this game. That's all I want to do. So we haven't gotten a chance to do that. But uh, yeah, I still have his contact information. So hopefully we'll do that someday. <laughs> eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right. So let's talk about sort of heading forward. One of the interesting things to me, and you can tell me if um, if you agree with me here. I'm a little bit older than you, is um, I feel like the world has changed in that maybe once upon a time, there would have been a stigma if you were a broadcaster with WWE and then you tried to get into conventional, quote unquote, conventional sports or, mm -hmm. you know, stick and ball sports, like they would right. have, I think executives or the audience would have just seen you as that's a wrestling guy. Well, that's been blown up. I mean, whether it's Renee, uh, Jonathan Coach, I make mean, a little, you know, Charlie Caruso, I think, just got hired by ESPN. Like, I could, yes. there's probably, if I actually did the research here, I can probably give you Todd you know, Grisham. Todd Grisham. I give you far more people who have 
um, gone back and forth between sports entertainment and the um, traditional stuff. So I wonder for you, does that give you, um, I don't know if ho- hopeful seems a little bit too big a word here, but, but do you feel comfortable in that there's not any kind of stigma about going from being a broadcaster of the WWE to, let's say, one day doing college football or college basketball? Uh, hopeful, comfortable, optimistic. Um, I think that I, I completely agree with you. I think all those people you just mentioned have already kind of proven that, yeah, it's not the same as it used to be. Um, I think there is still that stigma. I experienced it for nine years talking to people outside the business um, that were like, oh, okay, so like, where's your baseball? Where's your football? Where's your basketball? Where's your hockey? And the truth about sports entertainment is that if you aren't all in, immersed 24-7, it isn't going to work. And I can take a lot of pride in saying I was immersed for nine years. So now it's a matter of I'm able to be an asset because of what WWE taught me. Um, So now I'm excited to go out and prove that. Um, I know uh, college football intimately because my time, I remember seeing LeVar Arrington tackle Antoine Randall L when I think I was like eight years old at Beaver Stadium. So I am a diehard college football fan. Um, Biggie would attest that I'm a college football or just football junkie, uh, whether it be my Eagles in the NFL. I'm the guy who watches the XFL, the CFL, the AAF, like arena football at one point. Like, that's me. Um, so I feel very confident in my abilities to learn. Um, but at the same time, man, like, I have no delusions. Um, I understand it's like, yeah, like anything, I need to get in someplace and learn. I need to start at the bottom and work my way up. And I have no issue with that. That's something I want to do. So one of the things that you obviously have to do is you have to have a game plan. Um, you have an agent. Uh, it's a guy named Sean Wyman who works out of Max uh, Talent's office. He's actually the guy who contact, contacted me to make this happen, which I appreciate. And so when you talk to him, like, uh, and I think people would just be interested in this because this is sort of behind the scenes. Like, what? how do you guys game plan the idea to to get back into this? Do you... Um, do you have, like, again, my, this is just a guess. I don't know this, but it's a guess that you, your probably tapes of doing conventional sports at this point are probably like nine or 10 years old. So do you rely on what you did a decade ago? Do you, do you go to a studio and like literally let's say recall the game so that, um, an executive in an ESPN or an NBC or Fox, like can see you do something contemporarily because that's what's an interesting case for you here is that um you know you don't have let's say something that you called like last week because you've obviously been doing the wwe for nine years correct um no i i think my work from for instance when i was in college or right after college it's not reflective of the broadcaster i am now right um i've just learned so much more in terms of just basic broadcasting 101 and um, you know, storytelling that, that that's the greatest thing I took away from WWE is storytelling. So I have a very different view, I think, of looking at games than most people just because of my pedigree with WWE. Um, and yes, yeah, so your point about doing things in a studio like that, that has absolutely been the game plan for uh, quite some time. Um, so that's kind of already been the thought process and has been in the works. Um, I can say that as recently as right before the pandemic, um, late 2019, I got to call an Ivy League football game for oh, uh, nice. locally here in Philadelphia for ESPN Plus. And it was so it was so weird, Richard, and I'll tell you why is because wrestling is geared like any other entertainment you know, product that you watch. There's a cliffhanger or there's a big dramatic ending. 
So when you're watching most sporting events, not all of them end in some ridiculous Hail Mary or something like that, like Stefan Diggs going into the end zone against the Saints. It's like some games are over by the last drive of the third quarter. So I remember calling that game, kind of having my sea legs under me by like, you know, the end of the second quarter, third quarter, I was like, okay, I feel pretty comfortable. And it's like the game slowed down, quote unquote. But then as the third quarter is ending, I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, this game's over. And then it just sort of ended. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, it's like, this was different. And it's just, you, you acclimate. So um, I think it's experiences like that for me to just get my, you know, as I mentioned, my proverbial sea legs are, are what I need. And learning from a lot of really talented people that I've gotten to know um, outside of the industry. Right. Sammy Zane's not coming into the Penn uh, Temple game and hitting a guy with a chair shot at the end of the game to to Oh, that would be incredible, actually. I remember one of my first runs on SmackDown, Seth Rollins taking a a bump over the table and his back, if his head was kind of like, if his body was, I, I guess you could say horizontal, his back hit my chest. And then the space between the desk and the barricade is maybe a foot or two. I went boom, boom in a heartbeat. And I had barely been on SmackDown for a cup of coffee. And I was like, yeah, I don't think there's anything else in the world where it's full (laughs) contact announcing. And now you look down at your sheets and there might be blood on the sheet. So it's a little different. (laughs) Were you ever part of it? I should know this. I just honestly don't. Were you ever intentionally part of a storyline where you took a bump or anything physical? Uh, never took a, like a, like a conventional bump in the ring, but or, or outside um, the ring. If anybody, Stephanie, liked uh, there was one, I think it was before Christmas in 2015. Um, I think it was the slammies was also coinciding with raw and, uh, Stephanie McMahon, uh, like just slap me uh for lack of a better term so uh people who know will know um but yeah knew about it uh and and everything it was so much fun like it seems weird but like uh cory graves standing right off camera at the time and just staring at me just like a big brother being like yeah this is gonna be fun (laughs) so it's just it's a rite of passage it was great she is a great great performer did she actually literally slap you it's not a stump slap right oh oh no Oh no, that was uh, that was full that was legit, right? Yeah, Stephanie is a wonderful human being. I've had nothing but great interactions with her. Yeah. But if you ask anybody that's taken the Stephanie McMahon slap, she means it, and that's a good thing because it's live and it better not look, you know, improvised. Well, she's all in as a performer. She's one of the best performers yes, in the history. One hundred percent. One of the amazing things about Stephanie McMahon, and then I will move off this anyway, is like, like literally, this is a woman who like is running, is a CEO or or you know whatever her official title is, like running a company while at the same time, like can be an active performer in storyline. Like there's literally like, like if you just thought about like that role as like the head of IBM or Apple, like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's inconceivable that she can sort of live in these two worlds, but yet she lives in those two worlds, which is like just amazing to me. And it's uh, almost um, it's almost par for the course within the company. And look at how many executives have had the oh, opportunities yeah. to play on air roles. Yeah. The ability to compartmentalize whether you're at that level of the company or you're uh, a superstar. I am constantly well, blown I mean, Vince, away by her. You know, her dad basically like sort of invented that. I mean, like fact, yeah. you know, like the <laughs> like look how many times that guy took shots. Like I mean, he's you know he literally. <laughs> you know, you could you could make the argument that that him as the authority, as a literal character, like whenever sort of like that attitude zero run was, he's the best character in the company, not to mention he was running the company. 
Yeah. Just a little busy. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, again, I don't know how you compartmentalize that stuff. So yeah. uh, it's just amazing to me. Crazy, crazy. All right. So if you had your druthers, would, would college football be the sport that you would want to get into? And if that's the case, the good news is that there is so much inventory out there. I mean, you look how many games ESPN Plus has. Um, you see, like, um, the streaming services for NBC, like Peacock and Fox, et cetera. Like, you know, you while you may not get, let's say, the Gus Johnson, Joel Klatt game, the reality is there is a ton of inventory out there to do. Sure. And, and as I said before, I have no delusions. I have no ego going into this. I want to start at the bottom and work my way up. Um, but again, I'm the college football junkie who's obsessed with oh, they're in this remote part of the world. I remember watching, like, I think it was 2009. It was Montana versus Appalachian State in Miami. Uh, I'm sorry, in Miami and Montana in an FCS playoff semifinal. And it's driving snow. It was one of the best games I ever saw. I probably have the year wrong. But I was like, this is so cool. And can you imagine that tiny corner of the world in Montana and all these people are there huddled together in probably negative weather, and they're going bananas, and you've got a great game in front of you. That's the thing I love about college football, and frankly, all types of football. I mentioned a billion different leagues. I think the Canadian Football League is fascinating because of the import-export uh, situation that they have, and there's so many guys that I've identified. I'm like, oh, I remember Jeremiah Masoli. Okay, cool. You know, He did some cool stuff at Oregon. I know all that stuff, but at the same time, I appreciate that any given, you know, day of the week, whatever it is during football season, that the smallest part of the country can be king for one day. Right. I think that's a magnificent thing. And having come from Penn State, where on a Saturday, it's the third most populous city in Pennsylvania. And then all of a sudden, all these people disperse to wherever they were from. It's electric. There's no other atmosphere like it. That's yeah, going to be amazing when we get a real whiteout again. At, uh, oh, my God. At, yeah. And, dude, I was losing my mind last year when they played, uh, I think it was maybe Michigan at home or somebody was like, well, this is what the whiteout looked like this year. And this is what it is this year. And I'm like, I know. I'm sad about it. Okay. <laughs> we'll get back to it. The last thing I want to ask you is this. Um, and again, because this is a podcast, it's always of interest to me. But have you looked into um, – joining if there is a spot like an existing college football podcast or even if it's not necessarily like a uh, a popular one like starting a college football podcast with someone just so you can get uh, just so an audience can get familiar with you as a college football or college basketball person to me again like one of the challenges for you is going to be just to like let the sports audience know that um, yes, while you did this for WWE for 10 years, like this is, this is not all you do. And I wonder if like, um, like an, like an audio venture, like can help ultimately, um, get you to where you want to be, obviously, which is sort of a, uh, an on-air, uh, television broadcasting gig. A hundred percent. I'm fascinated by the podcasting world and it's something that I would love to be a part of, uh, especially be able to talk college football, like that that's not work for me. That's just fun. Um, and uh, listen, I, I understand, you know, nine years with WWE, my, my heart is going to be in professional wrestling, I think for the rest of my life. Um, and I am grateful for everything that the professional wrestling industry did for me. And I'm just so excited to be able to apply that into a different field. Um, that being said, 
it's a new challenge. And if I can do something in the podcasting space that, you know, people want to listen to, uh, that's really, really cool. Cause I, I, I don't know. I just don't have that much of an ego of like, Oh, people want to hear my opinion on that stuff. It's like, well, you enter the space and that's great. Um, cause as play by play guys, we, we get so used to just being like point guards that don't score. I'm about setting up my teammates and I don't really care about, Oh, making sure I get my stuff in. So I'm just really excited to take what I have to apply to different sports, whether it be college football, professional football, NBA, college basketball, baseball, hockey, you know, anything. Well, uh, Tom, good luck to you on this because this is very interesting to me. Again, I'm a huge, uh, I'm a big professional fan of Renee. She happens to say, I think you know this if you work with her, happen to be a great person as well. She's the best. Yeah. And I'm always just interested in people who leave um, the world of pro wrestling and, and try to, I mean, going, saying, saying going back into mainstream is nonsense because pro wrestling is not, is mainstream, but going back into sort of con- the conventional, um, stick and ball sports that we know, but the good news for you is like, there's a path here and it's been done already before you. So I think, uh, uh, I have no doubt that opportunities, um, will be out there. Tom Hannafin, we'll, we'll kill the other name for now, uh, <laughs> spent nine years with the WWE and again, if you're a pro wrestling fan, you know, you saw him on NXT, SmackDown, 205 Live, NXT UK, and Raw. Um, and now he is looking um, for opportunities in the traditional sports space, including college football. And so maybe we will see him soon on a broadcast. Uh, Tom, I appreciate you giving uh, me some time today and some insight into what's been an interesting professional career so far. Thanks so much uh, for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me on, and uh, here's to the future. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Jamel Hill and Tom Hannigan for their time and insights. If you like these conversations, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch podcast page, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review. Nice note. Uh, that, that helps me immensely when it comes to the people running this podcast. Head to the archives. You'll probably find something you'll like. Last week, uh, the Athletics' Kavitha Davidson on... Um, the challenge of covering the Tokyo Olympics for NBC and Gretzky's hire to turn to sports. Jimmy Traina was also a guest, but we talked about the gambling money in the sports media, Adnan Burke's exit from WWE, and uh, something Jamel and I talked a little bit about, uh, the rush of uh, fan, uh, fan violence at uh, sporting events. So um, check that out. Again, there will be uh, those other podcasts that I think uh, you'll enjoy. James Andrew Miller, not too long ago, on the end of Kenny Main at ESPN. We had a roundtable on the future of sports viewership and ratings. Uh, Steve Kornacki, not too long ago, was a guest on this podcast talking about uh, his foray in sports. And then if you like uh, wrestling, Paul Heyman went behind the scenes on WrestleMania. So check out uh, the archives. Hopefully something there you like. want to thank Patrick Antonetti, of course, for producing this podcast. Thank you to everybody at Cadence 13. And thank you, most importantly, to the audience. I appreciate your listening and I appreciate your support. And we'll see you very soon on the Sports Media with Richard Dutch Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. 
Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.